0: Lord, we give this time to you and uh, we just uh, ask your blessing uh, to continue to be on Mary. Uh, Lord, that you would comfort her, that you would encourage her, that you would give her the courage and boldness that she needs to be the ambassador that you've called her to be, Lord. We know that we're called to be ministers of you in season and out of season, regardless of what we're going through. That's what you teach us in your word. And that's what you did, God, when you were, when you were weary, when you were tired, even when you were dying. Lord, you were still being an ambassador of your father. God, so I pray, uh, that you would continue to just give her the words, give her the the heart, give her the character, everything she needs, Lord, that you would bring the right people to comfort her, uh, Lord, that more than anything that she would know, that you're right there with her. In Jesus' name, amen. And bless the message, right? Second <laughs> Samuel chapter 10. Um, fresh little recap, if you were with us last week, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, and we've seen We've seen David's kingdom just really be established. The Ark of the Covenant is back in Jerusalem. His palace is set up. God's given him promises. He made the Davidic covenant. He's winning all these battles. David and his ministry, his kingdom is just thriving, thriving, thriving. And then we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan that he would essentially protect and not kill, uh, the, the men and people that come from his lineage. So he asks, he's like, is there anyone that survived from Saul's household? Are there any descendants of Jonathan that I can bestow kindness to? And we remember, uh, Jonathan's son, uh, that survived, who was crippled, uh, Mephibosheth, uh, he's still around and he's actually in hiding because he thinks David's going to kill him. Uh, well, that couldn't be further from the truth. So David, um, he he goes, he sends messengers uh, and he has this conversation with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth bows down before him, and they have this amazing dialogue. And David bestows this kindness and this grace to Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth receives it. And we talked last week about how we're a picture of Mephibosheth, right? This broken, crippled, desperate person, sometimes hiding from the king, and yet the Lord, he wants to bestow grace and kindness to us and he simply wants us to respond to it. Well, I also mention next last week that we kind of have these uh contrasting passages going on between 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 2 Samuel chapter 10, where in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the king attempted to bestow grace and kindness, and Mephibosheth received that grace and kindness. Once again, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, the king is going to attempt to bestow grace and kindness to an individual, and this person is not going to receive it. In fact, he's going to to reject it, which is ultimately going to lead to warfare. And in this text specifically, we're going to focus on Joab and David and how they fight for the kingdom of God. It's the title of this teaching, fighting for the kingdom, fighting for the kingdom. We see that Paul, he likens Our spiritual walk or our walk of faith to really a fight of faith. And in his very last letter, just before he dies, he knows he's going to die. Before he was beheaded in Rome, he tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And we'll look at David and Joab and how they fight for the kingdom. And we'll parallel that to our personal fight of faith. We'll understand better as we dive into the text. If you would with me, it's 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David is attempting to be kind, literally be kind to this new king. The guy's dad died. He goes to comfort him and he pursues this man. Remember, David, he's a picture of Christ. He's not Christ. He's flawed, but he gives us a picture of Christ. He's the king's king that he's put in place over the kingdom of God. And what we see here through this text is that it's a picture of the king once again. Pursuing man with grace and kindness. See, it's God that pursues man. And that's really how this whole world started. In fact, that's how religion started. Yes, there are man made religions, but the very first religion, it started with God pursuing man and man responding to God's pursuit of him. Let me show you. It's Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, shortly after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their rebellion. It says here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. They were calling on the actual Lord. We see, this is really interesting. I'm studying world religions right now. And there are uh, these evolutionary... Um religion people, where they say, you know, okay, so if people evolved from uh, the descendant of monkeys, okay, we have a mutual descendant, is what they'll say, then religion must have evolved too. And they'll claim, based on no evidence, no fact whatsoever, they'll claim that religion evolved, and monotheistic religion is just the most evolved religion. That's why we have, you know, Judaism and Christianity and Islam and all these different things. Well, there was this guy from, uh, I believe he's from Germany, and he studied anthropology, and he actually went through this kind of complicated method and studied the original religions that took place based on a lot of different things. I can't get into the details. And he found that actually the evidence supports the fact that the original religions were monotheism. It lines up with the Bible. It was God that pursued man, and man started responding. They started praying to the one true God. And we see with cultures, they start off with this monotheistic religion and recognizing the one true God, and then they start getting away from it. And then they start adding this man-made stuff, and they literally start worshiping demons and practicing magic. And it's absolutely fascinating that we can look at this through history and anthropology and recognize, no, it's God who has constantly been pursuing man since the beginning of time. And he desires each and every man and woman simply to respond to his pursuit, to respond to his grace and kindness. This also verifies Romans chapter one, that it's not just us. It's not just the children of God, the people that have accepted God. God has been pursuing all men. That's why Paul says it like this in Romans chapter one. uh, He says this, In verse 18, we'll read to verse 20. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. See, they had, they should have enough inside of them, literally, to know that God is real for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they are without excuse he says every single man it doesn't even have it doesn't even matter if they've heard the gospel every single man and woman has enough enough inside of them and outside of them creation to recognize the one true god because god pursues man he makes himself known to men and he desires that men would respond. That's what we see with David. David is pursuing this man. He wants relationship with this man. He wants to be at peace and bestow kindness on this man. And sadly, this man is going to reject the grace and kindness of the king. The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 3. Second Samuel chapter ten, verse three. Oh, continue with verse two. Um, I'll reread. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. David's servants. David is complete, being completely genuine with this. The guy's dad died. Um, there's some indication that Jesse might have died at this point because we don't see him anywhere. That's David's dad. So he could have been coming from a place of uh, you know compassion and experience, but we also see that this was a a customary traditional thing. You were supposed to pay respect to, you know, the surrounding nations if you were in right relationship with them, if they uh, lost a family member, especially a king. So David is doing this in complete sincerity, but look what happens in verse 3. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? These men are wicked men, so they believe David is wicked. Often, untrustworthy people struggle trusting other people, right? (laughs) Right? They can't trust themselves. So how are they going to trust another individual? So, hey, maybe these guys got burned in the past and they just simply don't trust people, but they're making wrongful assumptions because that is not David's intention. He's not going there to spy out the land. Again, I said, he's being sincere. This is genuine. He's trying to comfort this guy that just lost his father and is in this grieving and mourning process Because, but because these men, and we'll see they're wicked, because they're wicked, they just think everyone else is wicked. And that's so often what happens in this world. Wicked people assume that everyone is wicked. Everyone is untrustworthy. But this doesn't just happen with untrustworthy people and their lack of trust towards others. This can happen with trustworthy people still having a lack of trust towards other individuals. They can put walls up because they've been burned in the past, burned in the past. Someone's wronged them, whatever the case may be, a friend, a family member, a father, a husband, a wife, you name it. And they can begin establishing bitterness and resentment in their heart and not trusting other people. But here's the reality. The Bible teaches us in First Corinthians chapter 13 that love believes all things. Love believes all things. Now, we can't take this out of context. This doesn't mean that I'm going to believe everything someone tells me. Like, I got this deceitful person, and he's always lying to me, and all of a sudden I think he's going to tell me the truth. No, that's rooted in my faith in the Lord. Love believes all things, among other things, is basically this. Even if somebody is coming to deceive me, okay, even if someone has an ill will towards me, Love believes that God's going to make this thing work out together for good. So I'm just going to love on this person. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gracious because I recognize even if this person's intentions are to burn me, God is going to use this for a specific purpose, a specific reason. But these men, they don't understand this because they don't know the Lord. This isn't David's heart. This isn't the heart of the king. He has good, pure intentions. They simply don't trust him. So look what this king ends up doing in verse four. Therefore, Hannon took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. So the shaved face, typically in that time period, it was just slaves that had shaved faces. And to have a beard, like, and a nice beard was a very honorary thing. We remember David acting all crazy. Remember, he was drooling on his beard, and that was like a disgrace. They thought he was a madman. Why? Because the beard was like a, a big deal. You know, it's like, man, they got a nice beard. That must be an honorable person, if you will. So they shave half their beards. It's disrespect. They're dishonoring them. And then they cut off the garments. I don't think, uh, we have to explain that one, right? Okay, it's just embarrassing. So they have to walk home with their butts hanging out, basically. <laughs> but we see the issue here really stems from the fact that Hannon took the advice of his servants even though this was wrong and poor advice. This is point number 1. Taking the wrong advice can invite warfare. Taking the wrong advice, advice can invite warfare because that's exactly what's going to happen. He takes the takes wrong advice from the wrong people and this literally is going to start a war. Now, the Bible teaches us that there's Uh, wisdom in the counsel of many, right? We know there's wisdom in the counsel of many, but there has to be wisdom in the counsel that we're seeking, right? And there's no wisdom with these men. So yeah, we could get a bunch of fools together and get advice, but it's not gonna be wisdom. Just because there's wisdom in the counsel of many still means that we have to seek wise counsel, seek the wisdom of the Lord. We'll see later on. David's grandson, Rehoboam, make a similar mistake... It's in 1 Kings chapter 12. I'll summarize it for you. Okay, so Solomon, he dies. Rehoboam, he becomes the king. And one of the first things that happens is the people go to Rehoboam and they say, hey, listen, your dad was way too hard on us. He made us build the temple and he made us do all this stuff. And yeah, Jerusalem is beautiful, but we can't handle that. He put a heavy burden on us. So Rehoboam, he listens to their advice. He goes to the elders and he says, hey, guys, what should I do? The wise elders that have been around the block for a while. And they say, listen, if you serve these people and listen to what they're saying they will serve you for the rest of their lives great advice wisdom they had wisdom this council of many then he goes to his buddies right he goes to his friends he goes, hey what do you guys think he says what in other words don't you want to be better than Solomon tell him that my father whipped you with whips but I'm going to whip you with scorpions I'm going to even have, I'm going to put more of a burden on your shoulders and guess what Rehoboam did He listened to the advice of his friends, and that was the very act that split the kingdom between Judah and the rest of Israel. Because of that, because of listening to poor advice, he literally invited a civil war. Now, maybe you taking poor advice won't start a civil war. But it absolutely invites battles. It invites obstacles in our lives that, that are typically unnecessary. And if we would just listen to the wisdom, and I hope and pray that you have people that you're surrounded with that have wisdom based on the word of God, not just what they think or their opinion or how they feel. If they keep saying, I feel this, that's a red flag, okay? What does the Bible teach? And if they give you wisdom, that sound with the Bible that lines up, with the word of God okay yeah maybe that's true for this specific circumstance sometimes we have friends that mean well but they don't give good advice they tell us to do things that are completely contradictory and if we just go with the advice of men without considering the wisdom of God we're going to invite things into our lives that we would be better off having nothing to do with this is how this battle starts he's listening to the wrong people Second Samuel chapter 10, verse 5. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. See, this Hanan guy, he did more than disgrace David's servants. In disgracing David's servants, he was disgracing David right? Because they're literally ambassadors on David's behalf. So it was basically just as bad as him, you know, shaving the beard of David and sending him out half nude. That's basically what it is. David's going to take this personally, but this also helps us to understand the dynamic between us being ambassadors for Christ. See, when people disgrace and put to shame God's children, It's putting to shame his name. It's literally putting to shame his name. And he's not cool with that. He hates that. He despises it. In fact, he said it to Paul the apostle. If you recall in Acts chapter 9 verse 4, he told Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, technically, he didn't do anything to Jesus directly. He was persecuting his people. And because he was persecuting the Lord's children, the Lord said, no, this is personal. You made this personal against me because you you went after my kids. And I'm going to protect my kids. And it's not okay if you put my kids to shame, if you disgrace them. But the same holds true for us, even as kids of the king. How we deal with each other we're gossiping about someone if we're bringing shame to their name unwarranted shame If we're just talking about people behind their back we're not just disgracing them we're disgracing the king we're literally disgracing the king we're bringing shame to his name and that's not okay in the lord's eyes there's got to be a mutual love. There's got to be a mutual respect. Yeah, if you have an issue with someone, the Bible teaches us that we're called to address that issue with the individual. Not go and talk behind their back. Not go behind them and say, hey, well, this person did this and this person did that. That's a sin. It's completely unbiblical. And when we do that, we're, true. we're sitting against God. We're disgracing his name because we're shaming his kids. It's not that the individual did, didn't do anything wrong. Maybe they did. But when we bring it up in a manner that's unbiblical, we're bringing shame to the name of Jesus. So this man, Hannon, he disrespects David by disrespecting his servants. And David does something commendable. He says, I want you to go to Jericho. Okay, until your beards grow back, because I know you're embarrassed. He didn't use this as a means to like, uh, get his people all riled up and like take these guys and say, hey, look at, look at what they did and make the guys walk through Jerusalem with their shaved beards and their butts hanging out, right? He didn't do that because he's an honorable king. He cares about his people. He loves his people. And this too is a picture of Jesus. When the world beats us up, When the world tries to make us feel ashamed, maybe for things that we've done in the past, maybe for things that we currently believe, whatever the case may be, the Lord, he doesn't beat us up further. He doesn't add to the shame. No, he encourages us. He comforts us. He tries to build us back up. Why? So that we can get back out there and fight again. Because he wants these servants to continue the work of the ministry that God has called them to. They just need some time. They need some time to recover. They need some time to get some new clothes and let their beards grow back, right? So the text says, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6, When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rethob, and the Syrians of Zoba, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Macca, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. So, they gather quite a large army, especially from the Syrians to come and battle against David. They knew that they didn't have a chance against David because David had the mighty man, And not only that, he was blessed by God. It tells us, um, in first Chronicles chapter 19, verse six, uh, that they paid a thousand talents to get this army for one battle okay so a talent um is essentially seven is it's a uh, thousand talents of silver. So basically, scholars debate about this, but it was basically like 75 pounds of silver per talent. Okay, so we're talking about 75,000 pounds of silver. Okay, can you even imagine that? I don't even know what that looks like. I probably should have looked up a picture. But if we, I did the math, what it would be today. And actually back then, silver used to be more valuable than gold, which is interesting. But if we just used the, you know, we don't know what it was worth. I couldn't find it. I tried to look at it. But today, that'd be 16 and a half million dollars. They paid him for just this one battle. We will see this is an absolute waste of money. But look at how many rec- uh, men they recruit. Overall, it's about 33,000 soldiers. What Hannon is attempting to do is recruit such a large army that David's intimidated and he won't even fight back. And this is exactly what the enemy tries to do with us in our lives. He tries to intimidate us to instill fear in us this is point number two don't fear the enemy have faith in the king don't fear the enemy have faith in the king this was a fear tactic build this big army yeah maybe we'll win if we're fight but maybe we won't even have to fight because the army is so large the enemy does this in first peter chapter five verse eight says this first peter 5 8 it says be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he's a roaring lion he likes to make a lot of noise he has a loud roar and he's powerful like a lion but his power is limited His power is limited by who? By the God that created him. And the enemy can only do to us what God lets him do. Just as we see in the book of Job. Yeah, the enemy will wreak havoc on our lives in certain seasons. But again, he can only do as much as the Lord allows him. See, this army, though it's large, though it's intimidating, though it could instill fear, we're going to see David have the faith to fight back and eventually have victory over this army. But the enemy, this is often what he tries to do with us. The enemy works through fear. He works through intimidation he tries to discourage us it could be spiritual warfare it's not always spiritual warfare could just be obstacles in our way that the enemy puts in our way why because he wants to discourage us from doing what god has called us to do and if he can instill enough fear in us to prevent us from answering the call of god in our lives then guess what he won He, he won why because the Lord wants to use us for various reasons. One being bringing people to the Lord. And if He could just scare you that one little time to not share the gospel with that person that you know you're supposed to, He won that specific battle. And the Lord does all, or sorry, the enemy does all kinds of things in our lives to try to instill that fear. The army of 30,000, the obstacles that are so overwhelming. You ever been in that situation where you just got like, it's one thing after another. It's like this trial Comes, and then this next trial comes and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And there's all these obstacles. I feel like I'm one person trying to fight thirty-three thousand men. There's no way I can win this battle. But that's the point of what the enemy is trying to do, he's trying to instill that fear in you to believe that you can't fight the battle or that you can't win the battle. But fear, we see fear is not of the Lord unless it's a fear of the Lord, okay? Any other type of fear is not from Jesus. He tells us perfect love cast out fear. When we're in the Lord's perfect love, when we're keeping ourselves in the love of God, we recognize we have nothing to fear. But sometimes we get distracted by the army of 33,000. Sometimes we get distracted by the storm. Sometimes, again, the obstacles are simply too overwhelming. Well, it happened to the disciples too. Specifically, Peter, if you would with me, it's Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. So, there's, um, <clears throat> Jesus left the disciples, he got them in a boat, he's going to meet them on the other side, uh, and the disciples are going through another storm, okay, that's the context, you know the story. In verse 28 it says, and Peter answered them, they see the Lord, okay, walking on the water. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. See what happens? Peter was able to walk on water until what? Until he started focusing on the storm. He was literally able to do something supernatural when he was focusing on Jesus. As soon as he got distracted by the storm or the army of 33,000, these overwhelming obstacles, he thought, I can't do it. I can't move forward. I can't take one more step. And he literally started sinking. Well, that's the reality. When we lose sight of Jesus, when we lose our focus on Jesus, we're bound to fall we're bound to sink we're bound to slip up it's absolutely inevitable that's why paul will tell us eh, might not be paul author of Hebrews uh, chapter 12 he tells, tells us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith and the context there is running a race I run this race race with endurance looking unto Jesus why because there's no way to finish the race there's no way to overcome the obstacles there's no way to endure the storm there's no way to have victory over the 33,000 unless why we're looking unto Jesus not the storm why because jesus is bigger than the storm he's bigger than the army of thirty-three thousand. he's bigger than all of that when we forget it that's when fear comes and the enemy gets us and he distracts us and he deters us and he discourages us from doing what god has called us to do but if we can realign our eyes and look back no jesus is in all of this he's the one in control he's the king of kings and lord of lords not the enemy and he's got me then we're able to have victory. But there is no victory when we're not not focused on Jesus. Luckily, David and his men, they weren't afraid of this intimidating army. They knew the king of kings had their back. So look what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 7. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. So David, he doesn't try to do this solo, he sends Joab, mind you, this will come up later, David didn't go to the initial battle, we'll bring that up later in the text, but he gets his mighty men to come and battle against the Ammonites and the Syrians. David recognizes that he needs the mighty men, not just, we're not just talking about, you know... um, (laughs) Every capable man, uh, you know, grab a pitchfork and let's go at it. No, he had specific people. He needed these specific people that were qualified, that were skilled, that were literally referred to as the mighty men. And when you see what some of these men do, some of them killed lions. Some of them have killed thousands of people at once. They've done all kinds of stuff. We see them throughout... Uh, First um, and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles. Uh, so these truly were mighty men. The Lord empowered them to do some seriously supernatural things. But this also gives us a picture of the type of men and women the Lord calls us to be. It's Luke chapter fourteen. The context is the cost of discipleship. Jesus speaking. Specifically to the disciples and he uses this illustration he says this in Luke chapter 14 verse 31 he says or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. What's Jesus getting at? If the king has the right 10,000 people, he can wipe away the 20,000 people. If the king has mighty men, 10,000 mighty men and women, then he has no problem overcoming the 20,000. But the king's got to know what kind of people he has. What kind of warriors he has battling for him. And the charge for us is to be that type of warrior for Jesus. Be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. A mighty man or mighty woman, if you will. It's not just the everyday Joe that's going to win this battle. At least not in David's eyes. No, it's the mightiest of men. And that's what the Lord calls us to be. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 10. Verse 8. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth, uh, Rethob, Ishtab, and Maka were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. So the Israelites, in other words, they're surrounded. Okay. Uh, they have, um, They have armies on both sides and they're in the middle. And Joab's like, oh, shoot. Okay, they got us on both sides. We better come up with something. So he ends up splitting the army. And this was a very wise strategy. Instead of them all getting clustered in where they were like, ah, we can't even move our arms, just getting slaughtered. No, they separated themselves and they literally engaged in two battles. Point number three, strategize against the enemy. Strategize against the enemy exactly what we see joab doing here but before he could strategize, strategize strategize uh against the enemy what did he need to know he needed to know the tactics of the enemy okay what are they going to do okay they're on both sides now i know what they're doing now i can strategize well guess what The Bible gives us the tactics of the enemy. The Bible gives us the tactics of the enemy. He gives us, the Lord gives us a cheat sheet of what the enemy is going to do virtually every time. Let me show you. It's 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It says this. For all that is in the world, he's the God of this world, the enemy is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Every time, the, the enemy's going to use one of these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, He's done it from the very beginning. He even did it with Jesus. Let me show you. In the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the first temptation before the fall of men. Look at what the enemy does. He tempts Eve into eating the fruit, right? And in verse 6, we see why she ate the fruit, why this was appealing to her. When the women saw that the tree was good for food, okay, that's the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. It's going to physically satisfy her flesh. That it was pleasant to the eyes. It looked appealing. That's the lust of the eyes. And lastly, in a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. It's the pride of life. The desire to be wise. Why? Because the enemy said, you'll be wise like God. You'll know what he knows. And she exalted herself. She wanted the same knowledge and intellect of God. It was the pride of life. Again, exalting herself. These are the same three tactics that the enemy uses, Satan himself, against Jesus when he's in the wilderness. You remember in Luke chapter 4, after he's baptized with the Holy Spirit spirit comes upon him. He goes in the wilderness fast for 40 days and the enemy, he tempts him. Look what happens in Luke chapter four, verse three. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. What's he appealing to? Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's appealing to the lust of the flesh of Jesus, okay? He says, but Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He says, I'm not falling for that. I'm not feeding my flesh. I'm feeding my spirit. Look at verse five. Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He showed him, look at all these kingdoms. In a moment of time, And the devil said to him, all the authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish look, Jesus, the lust of the eyes. He's trying to appeal to lust. Look at all these kingdoms. You could have it. Yeah, Jesus would gain those kingdoms but how? It wouldn't be through Satan giving them to him. It would be through the cross that was the only legitimate way for the Lord to overcome the world. And then look lastly in verse 8. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God throw yourself down for here for it is written he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you what's he doing he's challenging jesus's identity it's the pride of life prove that you're the son of god you say that you're the son of god prove it i want you to show me that you're the son of god it's the pride of life the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life guarantee you you can look at any sin in your life okay that the lord or sorry that the enemy tries to tempt you with and you can Pinpoint it to one of those three things. Okay, this is either pride going on in my life, either the enemy's trying to appeal to my flesh, or he's trying to appeal to my eyes, making me think I want something or should ha- have something that I simply shouldn't have. These are the tactics of the enemy every single time. If I know that, I can strategize against it. So I'm not gonna surround myself with things that are going to tempt me to give into my flesh, okay? I'm not going to go to places where my eyes are going to wander, and I'm going to struggle with giving into the lust of the eyes. I'm going to do my best to walk in humility, so I don't get into the pride of life. And when someone challenges me on something, they do it all the time, especially in the position that I I could do the... Well, you know, I'm the pastor, right? And uh, yada, yada, yada. No, no, no. Okay, just receive it. And you don't have to say anything. You don't have to prove your point. This challenge goes on, on and on again, not just the pride of life, but all of them. Watch, look throughout your day. Guaranteed, every time you're tempted, you'll be able to pinpoint it to one of those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because the enemy, though he's powerful, though he's intellectual, he does the same things every time. He has a pattern. And if we know the pattern, we can prevent ourselves from falling into his tactics. The text goes on. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 11. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So look at what Joab does. He didn't try to fight. He's the commander, right? He's the commander of the army. David's the king, but he's the commander. He gained that position. He's not trying to fight this battle on his own. What does he do? He literally asks his brother, his blood brother, to help him. Same holds true for us. When we find ourselves in battles, we're called to ask our brothers and sisters to help bear our burdens. That's point number four. Bear each other's burdens in battle. Bear each other's burdens in battle. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, if you want to write it down. Galatians 6, 2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear each other's burdens, but also ask people to bear your burdens when you need it. I think one of the hardest things for a lot of us is to ask for help when we need help, to share what's going on in our life, to share our struggles. Why? Because asking for help takes humility, okay? And we're born with pride. We have to learn humility. But it takes humility to ask someone, hey, man, I'm going through a battle right now. I'm going through a struggle, and I just need to talk to you. I just need to connect with you. Can you help bear this burden with me? Because I kind of feel like I'm all alone in this. Well, guess what? If you don't tell anybody about the battles that you're going through, you're going to be alone. Yeah, the Lord will be with you, but you won't have that brother or sister to come alongside of you because they don't know. You can't expect them to know exactly what you're going through. Same holds true for me. I got certain people, certain men in this church. I have my wife. I have certain men outside of this church. Some family, some spiritual family that I connect with when I'm going through stuff. Why? Because I know I can't do it alone. I can't. And I have battles. I have struggles. And when I try to do it alone, I fail. But when I ask someone else and I talk through it with them and I get them to bear my burdens, even if it's just, hey man, pray for me. Whatever the case may be, I find there's so much more victory in my life, but if I'm not asking for help, I can't expect to receive help. And me not asking for help, what is that? Once again, it's the opposite of humility. It's pride. And guess what happens? When we're going through something and we don't ask for help, we're going to fall 99.9% of the time. Why? Because the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, that pride comes before the fall a lot of times that pride is thinking, I got this. I can do this on my own. I'm going to have victory. I'm going to win the battle. I'm a son of God. I'm indestructible. But the Lord, he didn't just give, him a, give us himself. He also gave us the body of Christ to help bear these burdens, to help deal with these issues. But it's not just about asking for help. It's about being there to help other people, bearing their burdens. I ask you, bear my burden. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Not that it has to like equal out. Okay, you bore this burden for me, so I will do. No, but just being there for each other, right? When you see your brother or sister struggling, sometimes you just all over their face, right? They're just going through it. Like, are you all right? Like, are you really all right? Yeah, I'm good. No, no, for are you really all right? Sometimes it's asking them. Sometimes it's just knowing, okay, this person is going through this specific thing. I'm gonna be praying for them. I'm gonna be encouraging them. I'm gonna connect with them as much as i can and there's something so uplifting not just for them because we're bearing their burdens but there's something uplifting for us because we're coming together in the name of christ and now the lord's bearing that burden on our behalf but it takes both sides asking for help and helping others bearing each other's burdens and having our burdens bore by others second samuel chapter 10 verse 12 Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. This is like probably the best thing Joab ever said. Joab's a flawed man, right? He's a murderer. He's going to be part of a civil war later on in 1 Kings. But. This phrase by Joab is just solid. He gives his men the motivation that they need. Be of courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. Our courage and our strength to fight the battle. It comes from the Lord. That's where the courage comes from. That's where the strength comes from. So if we want the strength, just as Joab said, we got to seek it from the Lord. We're not going to have enough strength in and of ourselves. It comes from Jesus. But look at what he says. This is the reason why we're fighting. He says, be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. Joab encourages his brother by reminding him the motivation for this fight. In other words, we got a lot to lose here. If we lose this battle, our people, our families, they're going to get slaughtered. These warriors, they're going to take over Jerusalem. Literally, these places that God has blessed us with, the enemy is going to take all of it. Joab recognizes how much he has to lose. We too got to recognize how much we have to lose. We should fight for the sheer fact that we have a lot to lose. Think about everything the Lord has entrusted to you that he's blessed you with. Your friends, your family members, this church, whatever he's blessed you with, we all have a lot to lose. And don't say you have nothing to lose because you got something to lose. Sometimes when we recognize and we realize how much we have to lose, that's enough motivation to get us back on our feet and keep fighting. Sometimes we forget. We take it for granted. And we give in and we say, I don't really feel like fighting today. I don't want to get up. I don't want to grab my sword. I don't want to engage in the battle. But we ought to learn this lesson from Joab. We can't take that time off we got to engage in the battle constantly. Why? Because the enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy. He's out to rob us of everything that God blessed us with. And if we're not engaging in the battle, if we're not fighting the good fight, then we'll certainly lose something. And he also says in 2 Samuel chapter 10, he says, And may the Lord do what is good in his sight we see the faith of Joab. He's given the battle to the Lord. I mean, these, this guy was successful. Joab basically won every battle that we see him in, except the last one where he battled against David. Bad idea. But Joab is a mighty man. He's a mighty warrior, mighty commander, and he has all these other mighty men backing him up. Every logical thing would uh, lead you to believe that there's no chance that these guys are going to beat us. We win every time, but he doesn't even take that into his heart and consideration and let it puff him up with pride. He says, whatever lord the lord wants to do if the lord wants us to win this battle that's up to lord if lord wants us to lose this battle then that's that's up to him as well he's putting his confidence in the lord even with the outcome even if he loses see sometimes we don't win every battle sometimes we lose sometimes we fail but if we have this perspective like Joab did, then God can even turn our failures into successes. Joab's just fully trusting God. No matter what happens, I know the Lord's gonna make this work out together for good. Even if we lose this battle, the Lord will win the war. Second Samuel chapter 10, verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him doesn't even say that they fought. doesn't even say that they engaged in battle. Okay, based on the text, it appears they separated their army. One went after one. The other one went after the other one. And the people just fled in fear. Why? They probably realized, okay, this intimidating army and this strategy that we had to surround them, it didn't work. So Joab and Abishai and the men there, they had faith and they moved forward in faith. And because of their faith, the enemy fled. That's so true for our lives spiritually. If we can continue to press forward by faith, overcoming obstacles, the enemy will flee. The Bible promises us that among uh, several places in James chapter 4 verse 7. In James chapter 4 verse 7, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him, That's all you have to do. Keep moving forward in faith. Don't get distracted by what he's doing. focus on what God's doing. Just resist him. Try not to pay attention to him. Ignore him. just as Jesus did. He just you know shared some scripture, He focused on his fast in the wilderness. And the enemy he ended up fleeing from Jesus, just as we see these Ammonites and Syrians flee from Joab in the army. Second Samuel chapter 10, verse 14. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. Look what happens. The enemy came back. Just because the battle's over doesn't mean the war is over. The enemy will always come back as long as we're living, okay? Until the enemy is destroyed or when he's bound for a thousand years, we'll have a thousand years, we don't have to worry about it. But he's going to come back. We resist the devil. He flees. We continue to walk by faith, but we can count on him coming back. Let me show you. It's Luke chapter four with that battle, um, that spiritual battle between the enemy and Jesus. Look at what it says here at the end of this. Jesus walking by faith, not giving into the lust of flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Um, he battles him with scripture. And, and then look what it says in Luke chapter four, verse 13. it says, Right after this, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Means he's coming back. And that's the reality of our lives. The enemy is going to come back. There are going to be future battles that we need to engage in. Well, let's look at how David handles this one in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. We're almost done. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan and came to heal him. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with them. Then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobak, the commander of their army who died there. So at this point we see even more than 33,000 That we originally saw in the beginning of this story. But look what happens here. The Israelites, they didn't have a decisive victory until who was involved? Until David was involved, right? Before, it doesn't even say that they killed anyone. It just says that the people fled and they just recouped and they came back. Okay, maybe we try a different strategy. Likely recruited some more warriors to come back again. Now this, this is foreshadowing. For something that's going to happen in the next chapter why we'll get into this next week but david is in a time where he's supposed to be out to battle with his people and he's not and it's not the people in the battle that are going to lose the victory it's david which is ultimately going to bring defeat to the whole nation of israel in a sense at least spiritually so it says david He killed 700 charioteers. And it's not like implying that David did all this by himself, right? But he's leading the army. And this is why all these people are getting wiped out. And 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians. We see David, he wasn't intimidated either. He got up. He stood up. He realized that there was a battle that he needed to be a part of, that he needed to engage in, leading his people. He fought the fight of faith. And because of his faith, his people were victorious. Fifth and final point. Faith overcomes the enemy. Faith overcomes the enemy. There's no overcoming if David doesn't fight in this battle, and he has to have faith in the Lord that the Lord's going to give him victory to even get up, put his armor on, step out the door, and go engage in this fight. And that's the truth of our spiritual walk. It's first John chapter five, verse four, in verse John 5: four, it says, "For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John's pulling that from what Jesus said back in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So John makes the connection because he overcame, we overcome because the Lord overcame on the cross. We get to join in, partake with that victory, but it takes faith and it takes fighting the good fight of faith. In other words, moving forward, he says, I fought the good fight of faith. I kept the faith. I finished the race. He's given us a bunch of illustrations. I kept fighting. I kept running. I kept persevering. I kept enduring. I didn't give up. I didn't give up. I kept moving forward. There were times of sorrow. There were times of sleeplessness. There were times of fasting, times of persecution. He goes on the list of all the things that he went through. He says, but I never gave up. I continued to fight the good fight. And because I did, now I get to share in this victory that the Lord has won on my behalf. 2 Samuel chapter 10, this is where we'll close. Verse 19 and when all the kings who were servants to Desert saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So David's victorious. He makes peace with some of the people. They serve him. The Syrians, they want nothing to do with them anymore. Basically, they're saying, we're not even going to come back. But again, this time, the crucial difference was that david was a part of the battle and that's why they were victorious now we can look at this and go well okay was god saying okay i'm not going to bless the people not going to give them victory david unless you're leading the army that could be the truth but god wasn't just do he was doing this for many reasons okay God was doing this, yes, for the sake of the people, yes, for his sake, because his name is on the people, but he was also doing this for David's sake. He's trying to teach him a lesson so he doesn't fall into the sin that he ends up falling into in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't fight with your people, if you don't fight for your people, if you're not a part of the battle engaging, then you're gonna fail and you're gonna fall and you're not just gonna fail you, you're gonna fail your people. And that's exactly what's gonna happen. See, sometimes God, he calls us to battles to protect us. And we don't always think about that. Battle, protection, those things are like opposites. Sometimes we get beat up during battles. But hear me out. The Lord often calls us to battles to protect us. How does he do that? How does he protect us? Think about it. When you're going through a battle, what are you doing? You're praying like crazy, right? You're in the word. You're seeking Jesus. You're, you are fighting as hard as you can. Why? Because you're getting beat up by the enemy. And if you know you don't fight, then something horrible is going to happen. Oftentimes, the Lord calls us into a battle to protect us, to keep us from falling into temptation. Because when we ignore the battle or we think for a minute that there's not a battle to fight, what do I do? I give into complacency. I don't need to be involved in the battle. Give into apathy, exactly what David's going to do in the next chapter. Job's got it. The rest of the people can handle this battle. I don't need to be involved in this battle. And that's when the temptation comes and the sin and the destruction and everything that comes along with that. Yes, God calls us to battle for his victory, for the people's victory, but also for our personal victory. So we have the choice. Do we engage in the battle? Do we fight the battle and experience the victory that the Lord desires us to experience time and time again? Or do we give in and fall? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your Your word is just so awesome. God, so many things that you can get across to us. Um, about battles, spiritual warfare, battles in this life, obstacles, so many things, God. And I pray, Lord, that if, if there's any of us um, that's struggling with fighting, that wants to give up, that wants to quit, that doesn't want to press on anymore, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, that you would lift them up, that you would strengthen them, that you would convince them that giving up the battle is not an option, that we've got to continue to fight as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And as we fight, Lord, the, the enemy's bound to flee. Um, and we know we'll come back again, God, but we also know that the ultimate victory is in you, what you did on the cross, dying, rising again, and we know you're going to come back to claim that victory, Lord, so give us the faith, the trust in that, looking unto you, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.